and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's episode is with Julian Smith, founder and former CEO of Breather. Julian's one of the most direct, thoughtful, and intense founders I've had the pleasure of having on the show. He founded Breather in 2012 and has since raised over $150 million to build out the business. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of three books. Two of these, Trust Agents and The Impact Equation, were written with Chris Brogan. And the third, The Flinch, has consistently remained one of the top-read Kindle books since it was published in 2011. Having Julian on the show was a ton of fun. He's extremely original in thought and has some of the best content out on the internet. We talked about his article, The Complete Guide to Not Giving an F, the importance of showing up, failing your way to the top, self-awareness, and how we as a tech community can generally improve. Julian, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So Julian, really excited to have you on the show today. You know, we have a bunch of founders come on and talk about their companies and industries, but I'm really excited to pick your brain less about, you know, the business specifically and more about lessons learned scaling, um, lessons around self-awareness and, and how you think about behavior change. So before we jump into those talk, topics, tell us a little bit more about your background and how it led you to founding Breather. Yeah. Oh, ma'am. Okay. So actually, um, I'm older than the typical uh, sort of, you know, a startup founder that you hear about, maybe. Uh, when I was 33 or something, I started uh, Breather. And I started it after a whole bunch of other stuff in technology uh, that I had done. So I'm 40 now. So so going backwards, what I, what I had done over that period of time is I actually started in podcasting. Uh, much before it had any sort of size to it. I started the first podcast in Canada in 2004. Uh, that's the first time that I ever really did something online that was a job, so to speak. I got a, uh, a gig doing a podcast for Sirius Satellite Radio and a podcast network at the time that uh, was funded in Silicon Valley. And then from there, I just sort of, sort of you know, built my online uh, almost like brand and... Uh, an audience, so to speak. And I, so I, I stayed in that world. Uh, you know, I developed an early audience on social networks when that was like a <laughs> thing that was pretty easy to do, uh, including Twitter, of course. And, uh, and then I got a book deal through that process, uh, writing the first social media marketing book, which was titled Trust Agents, which I co-wrote uh, with another uh, sort of well-known internet dude called Chris Broken. And that was a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote uh, that, excuse me, that was a New York Times bestselling book. And then for, uh, and so for years, I, you know, I was just talking about technology and I was on the periphery of it. I, you know, had different websites that I had over time that's, you know, sold various things or I, you know, consulted with people, but I had never really built anything that had ever, uh, gotten VC funding or that it ever really scaled. And, and so after about three books, a lot of speaking engagements, a lot of thinking about technology, I came across an opportunity that I felt was sizable enough and, uh, that I was excited about and I felt like no one else was seeing. And so I built breather and, and there we are. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of, I, you know, from, from the sidelines, I've, I've been a huge fan of, you know, reading a lot of the, um, the materials that you've put out. And I actually want to dive in to a, a lot of the pieces that you've written and, and try to distill some of the nuggets because I think they're really interesting. You know, one of the most interesting lessons it seems you've learned through being an entrepreneur 
is this idea of celebrating, you know, one to two large achievements versus a bundle of tiny achievements. Talk a little bit more about that framing and your perspective on focus. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, the, the, the way that we got started on this subject in the first place is that uh, you, you, when you're 25, you're just like, you want a Wikipedia page, like as fast as possible or whatever kind of social signaling, you know, if you're that kind of person, uh, person that is going to like, I don't know, impress people at parties or some other thing like that. Uh, out, out there in that world at that time, uh, I was just, you know, I was meeting with so many different people online and I was like, wow, these people have great careers. They're building things. It's so exciting. I want to do something. Uh, and so you, you, you end up thinking like, oh, I'm going to do this thing and then this separate thing and this separate thing and this separate thing. And so you, you sort of gather a list of, you know, almost like Tim Ferriss, like accomplishments uh, that are like, not to, to denigrate him at all, but it's like, I have the most tango tours, you know, uh, <laughs> of, of anyone, which is like, that's nice. Uh, but what you notice over time as you sort of get older is it's like, those things actually do not have a, mat a material amount of substance. And I actually have, I can, I'm speaking as someone who has, uh, you know, a bunch of those things kind of on their resume. For a long time, I was really known for like reading a book a week. I sort of started that kind of vaguely, you know, vague phenomenon. I'd written a whole bunch of other uh, blog posts that people knew very well. And, uh, and ultimately what you realize is actually that going along and deep in something is much more substantial and you end up actually making a dent in the universe in a much more substantial way with that leverage and that scale because almost no one goes as deep and no, almost very few people go as deep in the things that you care about. So that's uh, definitely, that's like a lesson that most people figure out. And I wish I had learned it earlier for sure. When one of the, one of your blog posts that you, uh, you wrote on Medium, it's actually one of my favorite Medium articles, is, is titled The Complete Guide to Not Giving an F. And in, in some respect, I think it, it, very, it very well captures the sentiment you were just laying out, but it, it reflects a bunch of lessons around self-awareness. Talk, talk about that article a little bit more, you know, what inspired writing it and really when you look back at it and you reread it, what your, what your mm -hmm. key takeaways are. Yeah, it's amazing how much of a phenomenon that became after I wrote it. It, it became a book that someone wrote. It became in almost like five, ten different books, I almost feel like, and a hundred different blog posts by different uh, people on variations of that. Uh, it's you notice you notice that uh, your I don't know. I think the, the self awareness that you capture over time uh, as you sort of get older is that you. Uh, you encounter all these different things and you realize a lot of the stuff that you're doing, you're doing for other people. It's definitely something that I realized. And, and, and it would make me almost like tiptoe around the way that other people felt in a, in a really substantial way. Or if I had like done a faux pas, uh, I don't know if that's a French word that um, Americans might not understand, but like if I had misstepped socially or something, I would, I would go home and then like lie awake at night or something thinking about it. And, and then at some point you just kind of figure out like you're not the middle of, you're not at the center of everyone's universe. You're mostly just at the center of your own universe. And, and so your own, not like selfish way, but your own satisfaction, your own happiness has to come first. Uh, and so long as it's not at other people's detriment is a much better decision. And you actually like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of 
a version of the same lesson in the sense that when you're going out and doing 10 things and you're doing them because like, wow, this is cool and this is interesting. And then people are going to, you know, recognize this and nah, nah, and there's no real uh, depth to it. It's like anyone, it's like anyone can do that. It's not that interesting. And, and I think that, you know, I've been reading Wikipedia pages for, um, for various people, like, a lot of filmmakers recently, a lot of, because the Raptors won, won, the, uh, won the finals uh, this year, you know, a lot of athletes and a lot of other <laughs> things like that. And, and you just notice that, like, like you, your job is just to kind of get deep into that one thing that you care about. And it's interesting now on the edge of turning 40, about sort of 10 days from now or something like that, that, uh, that you you're just like, like so much of your time on this earth is absolutely wasted. And, and it's almost like the internet and other things are making it worse because there's so many easy ways to draw your attention away from what actually matters. And focus is not a, is not a very easy thing to capture and to hold on to, especially throughout the sort of demotivational periods where you're like, I'm doing great. And then you're like, oh no, I'm actually doing bad. And I wasted whatever, six months or something. I should quit. <laughs> sort of maybe the natural inclination. I'm sure you've felt that and people feel that when they do podcasts, for example. And I know that I have. And, and in actuality, a, a good example of that is had I started a podcast in 2004, as I did, and continued it for 15 years, my God, you know, you know what would that be now? So, so it's interesting how people really choose things in sort of temporarily sort of how do I feel in this moment kind of ways and how much almost like, I don't know, delayed gratification you need in order to really be able to get somewhere. Yeah. I think it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting nuance that you, you point out because it um, you're right. I mean, in, in starting my podcast, I started it, let's see a couple of years ago. Um, and there's, I mean, I remember going back and looking at the analytics of the first couple episodes and I'm convinced it was probably me and a bunch of friends listening to it. And that's probably it. But now on the horizon of episode 50, it's, it's gratifying to have folks actually inbound reach out and say, Hey, you know, I heard this awesome person on your podcast. I actually want to come on now, but it's taken mm -hmm. two and a half years. Right. Yeah, and that's it's right. really, it's at the very, very early innings, even then of something that, you know, I hope to do over the next couple of decades. So you're, you're right, which is after the first 10, 15, 20 it'd be very easy to quit um, because really you, you don't have much to show for it. But I think it's the analogy I like to think of it is it's kind of like, you know, when you're building a house, you drive by a house every single day, people mm. are laying the foundation. It looks like nothing's going on for eight months. And then all of a sudden within three weeks, the whole thing comes up. Right? Yeah, and exactly. it's, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those sentiments actually in tech. I think there's, there's a good amount of conversation about it today which is just this idea of showing up, right? And I, I actually had one of your earliest investors, Steve Schlafman, on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. And we spoke about, you know, what does it mean to show up? What does it mean, you know, to be a leader? And, and I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, what does that phrase mean to you? Less so in the, in the dynamic of kind of company leadership, but really kind of leadership of self. Because I think a lot of what you're talking about is this idea of really driving your own narrative and living your own journey, uh, as opposed to living, you know, what you would feel, you know, others would appreciate. It's particularly challenging because you've got this 
different, this different set of sort of ideas of what success looks like. Like it is, it is quite easy to think like that guy makes a lot of money or that guy um, uh, has a lot of followers or some variation on that of like, wow, look at the, the wealth that this person has accumulated or something and how it is completely uncorrelated with their inner satisfaction, right? And so to some degree, yeah, I'm sure there are some people that are completely enlightened or something and they have a million Twitter followers or whatever, you know, other thing that people are like, wow, this is just, but, uh, but I think that, you know, to three, you probably always need to take that inner and outside version of it and kind of like get them congruent with each other, which is maybe like the quest of a lifetime or something. So it's like, so, you know, I, I, what, here are the qualities that I have noticed that maybe good leadership has. I think it requires a humility and I think it requires a kind of purpose, which is an altruistic purpose versus, and don't get me wrong, like you can make a lot, you'd be like, yeah, and we're like the wolf of Wall Street and then everyone is excited by that leadership so long as the, so long as the, 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 the I don't know, rewards flow in or something but but i think in a larger sense people are just they just want to believe in something like that's what i noticed from my time quote unquote leading uh it's funny how i hesitate to even say that but leading uh breather as a business how it is it's really it's you know it's it's one of those things that you're continuously learning to do and uh, you know, I don't have kids, but I imagine, I mean, kids have to follow you maybe, but, uh, I imagine that it must be sort of the ultimate lesson in humility and sort of teaching and all these things to, to have kids. Uh, it, it, you know, it can't be unlike running a company where people come in and you have to every day sort of be kind of at their mercy, which is a really funny thing. Know that there are detractors, lead the detractors and the people that are convinced all at once. You know, leadership is like, if, if, if one decides to take that up and it's not for everyone, uh, it, it can be an amazing, very humbling journey. Some people that I know are, I like to say that uh, building a business is one of the most sort of self-awareness producing things that you can do because eventually your inadequacies will be confronted by reality and you're <laughs> going to fail at some major thing and you're like fuck i thought i was invulnerable for like a minute there and then all of a sudden you're failing and you really don't have a choice and sometimes you know in some cases you know you see in articles it turns into i have to fire all the staff or it turns into you know some very serious things and then you just still have to stand up and go through it again. So it's not like you get to give up and like move to Thailand or something and vanish. So that's, it, it really is, it is, it, it's a tremendous challenge. If you take it on, you learn a ton and you're confronted by almost like all of your weaknesses, which everybody ultimately sees given a large enough crowd size. I, uh, I, I recently transitioned from <clears throat> being a management consultant to running a, a small business, and we, we have about 80 employees. And I, I have to say it's, it's two things that, you know, you were speaking to that really strike out. One is um, 
leading a company, an organization is one of the most humbling things that you can do. And so if you don't have that humility, um, you can really drink your own Kool-Aid. But the reality is I think there's, there's opportunities that I see kind of failure or room for improvement every single day. I think there's no faster way to point out your own inadequacies than, than leading an organization. And I think the mm-hmm. second thing, the, the funny thing I always hear from folks that, you know, kind of either want to be a founder or a CEO, whatever it is, is this idea of, you know, when you're a founder, CEO, or, you know, leading an organization, kind of you're the boss. I, I think the polar opposite couldn't be more true, which is really you're the, you're the, cost, you're the, you're the worker bee really for everyone else. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, so it's a very, it's a very interesting position to be in. I want to, I want to flip back just a little bit though, to something we were talking about a little bit earlier and get back to this idea of compounding um, because, you know, it's, I think it's becoming more and more mainstream, more and more intuitive, especially in, you know, for compound interest, compound growth, there's, you know, endless kind of mm-hmm. personal wealth articles out there about it. But I, I think it's less intuitive when people think about it as applied to areas of their business as well as just areas of their life. You you had an mm-hmm. interesting rule in the early days of Breather, the 8% rule, and you said it made all the difference. So talk, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's yeah. so the 8% rule, who, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of distillation of this subject, I'm not even sure that I really made it up, although I did write, I did write about it. I was, uh, you know, maybe I had nine months of burn or something, and it was Christmas in 2013. And I met with another founder uh, who was close to me at that time. And uh, I was like, by the way, my company is like not growing at all. Not that it really had, there wasn't much growth that needed to happen. It was very, very small. And he was like, yeah, dude, just uh, choose a number and grow it 8% a week. And he said it to me in the most like easy possible way and the first week it is easy uh you know it turns out but then you know it becomes progressively more difficult at the time you know i remember sitting in this bar i think we were having a drink and he goes uh he goes i go i have i have no idea how to do that dude and he's like yeah you figure it out (laughs) (laughs) and so i and you know raising 150 million dollars later here we are it, 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 it's pretty amazing when you just realize that in startups, it's just like, what's the next step? Yep. And that you set yourself kind of an objective measurement of what that success is going to look like. Of course, Breather is not growing 8% a week anymore. That I wish it was. It's a, that would be an absurd growth path for a company of uh, its size. But it's pretty interesting how you're just like, well, here's the objective measurements. You know, this is why, I don't know, I'm a big fan. You know, you know how quantified self has like sort of come and go out of this world in terms of fashion. But if, if you just take things and you just look at them and you're like, great, I'm actually going to improve this based on what the spreadsheet says. You know, I have a lot of spreadsheets in my life, like for various things that probably you know, that other people I know, like including my fiance, believe uh, are not reasonable things to have spreadsheets about. But it's it's it gives you an objective measurement for like, what do I need to do? And then and then it's like, well, what's the OK, so what's the rule? And in, in this case, the, the, we chose hours booked per week as the measurement for breather mm-hmm. between the seed and the series A. And that was a measurement that turned out to be good enough. Schlaff, who you were talking about, Steve Schlaffman, uh, ended up writing that check, and I think that turned out really well for him. Uh, and 
and that was just, look, this is just what needs to happen. This is how we do it. And then just rely on human ingenuity to figure out the rest of the stuff. You know, another thing that leadership teaches you is that given the right people uh, at Breather at that time, I was proud of the people that we, you know, I'm still proud of the people that we have, but I mean, it, it was a very small, very tight knit group and none of us kind of, you know, I just relied on young people that cared a lot about what they were doing. And, and so we were like, we're going to wait for a week. We have no idea how to do it. And I put the number on the wall, I think, you know, and then every week I would just work really hard, start on Sunday and try to finish on Saturday to improve that number. And we grew 8% a week for a super, super long time. You said it was intuitive. I don't agree that that is intuitive. People do not understand the difference, which I was recently doing for a, another company between, for example, 15 and 20% per month growth rate. It, is, yeah. it doesn't sound that much, oh, that's fair. but over 12 months, it's a huge difference. You know, a growth rate of 20% per month ends up being something like 9x per year. Yep. And then a 15% growth rate, I'm looking at it now, is 5% a year. Yeah. Excuse me, 5x per year. Yeah. 5x a year. So the, the, the difference. And then now let's compound those years, the 9x per year versus the 5x per year. It's astronomically different. But when you come down to it, and this is why I'm such a big fan of daily habits and of doing something every day, because it is the daily compounding that is going to get you to that monthly growth rate or the weekly growth rate of 8% or whatever it is. Later on, this rule did become 20% a month. And, uh, and, and that daily compounding, that daily work is really going to, what's going to get you there. It's, it's very easy to be disillusioned. It's very easy to sort of have blinders on to not really think about what the real thing that is going to make a difference is. Uh, but if you find yourself thinking, oh, I don't know what's wrong. I'd be like, yeah, but are you really, you know, I'm a big fan of, are you really looking at reality or not? It's interesting. I, I, I buy the kind of counterintuitive. I, I buy the premise that it's actually not intuitive. It, actually, based on you know one of the one of the I think best distillations of this, which is the difference in growing. If you take a year and you improve one percent every single day for the course of a year, mm -hmm. versus sure. you get one percent worse, the differential is astronomical, right? In the case in which you improve one percent each day every single day for a year, you're actually thirty seven x better. And in the case in which you get 1% worse, I think it, it boils down to something like 0.13, right? So you basically right. lose your entire self or you can become 37x better. Um, it's, yeah, it's very true. Which it's, is, it's, you know, one of the lessons that I'm sort of figuring out right now, it's like you, you and then you try and, what, excuse me, what I'm trying to say is, is you will, you, your instinct, this is the, the thing about counterintuitive uh, lessons, it, your instinct is I need to work, you know, if you don't go to the gym for a while and then you're like, you, you go that one day and you go really hard. Like <laughs> as if that's going to uh, undo all of the damage or the neglect that you have put yourself through in the past like year, you know, like people that go to the, to the, uh, the gym on Jan two and give up by Jan 15 or something. And, and it's just like, like you, you need to, I wrote a book about this called Flinch a long time ago. It was, you know, gratefully is, was well received and translated by a lot of volunteers into various languages. And, and it was just like, need to be today, dude, just needs to be today. <laughs> just get through that thing. Just do it today. That's literally, 
10,000 words kind of of do it today, you know, over and over and over again. And it's a hard lesson to learn because your, you know, your, your brain, your sort of animal brain is fighting you all the time. Let's keep going on this kind of self-awareness track, right? Uh, you, you tweeted something pretty recently, which was, uh, and I'll quote, something happens when you get rich fast without having been poor. You think you can easily do what you did once a second time. This devalues luck and is fundamentally flawed. Plus, it's likely to make you poor again if you believe your own hype too much. Oh, I think there's a, there's yes. a lot to unpack there. And, and where I want to mm-hmm. start is how do you reconcile belief and conviction uh, mm-hmm. versus delusion and arrogance? Yeah, it's so difficult. It's true. Uh, today, having started a successful company, and I have to say, you know, this is, I don't know, this is a weird thing to say. But, uh, you know, I've never had a project that I have produced and worked on very seriously be like insanely, an insanely huge failure yet. I hope it never happens. I've sort of had like things where I'm like, this is going to be like this. And it's like, you know, shoot for the uh, stars and you'll hit the moon type of things. Like, of course, those things have happened. But uh, never has it occurred to me. Uh, that it's like, oh, like, you know, this is, this is just, you know, I, I, I can, I always, I've never felt like I was truly going to fail, like really in the most hardcore possible manner, although I have been afraid of it, of course, and that still drives me, you know, a lot. It's, uh, there is this, there is this sort of way of thinking about it, this lesson, which is like you will see people that have enormous amounts of confidence. And I think it comes off, it can come off as arrogance. And it's hard to discern like how self-aware people are. Uh, and definitely that goes up and down. But definitely the thing that I have been thinking my whole life over and over again, whether it turns out to be true or not, uh, is think of, it, think of this as a one-time thing. Like I remember, like you know, when in these early podcasting days, having sort of successes with contracts or successes with whatever, you know, you're a, a good example is maybe one of those blog posts that you read like a long, long, long ago, and it was like, wow, this thing, you know, some of them were flying for years, and it's like, don't assume that you could ever duplicate this or that you have some kind of golden touch, you know. It's so much of it is timing and so much of it is luck and you happen. And actually one of the, one of the great things is that you figure out if you ever invest in companies is watching companies that you didn't invest in become insanely successful. <laughs> and this has happened to me a few times. It's probably the closest to uh, really deep FOMO that I've ever really experienced. And so you'll see these companies like companies that I know and that, you know, probably, uh, that you see at the equivalent of maybe like a five million pre-money before they've ever really raised money, and they're friends of yours, and you're like, and they're asking you for advice and so on, and then later on they're billion-dollar companies, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, why didn't I just, you know? So, uh, so I think that we need to we need to think about skill and we need to think about hard work as being sort of elements of luck or elements of, you know, being able to influence the dice, but fundamentally they are dice. And, and so you see people that are successful, you think, my God, all of this stuff that they do, you know, in, in actuality, some of them are just flukes. And, and so this, this sort of, you know, pure, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, you know, 
objectification or something or, or a huge valuing of success as sort of an outside metric is maybe not completely worthwhile. Uh, anyway, so it's, you know, I, 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 you know, it's hard to not to notice that if you've been in the space for so long, you definitely notice things like that. I notice people that have tried one thing, become insanely successful, and then find themselves sort of never being able to duplicate again. And it's amazing to see those things and you can't help but think, well, maybe this is going to be me eventually. And what does that mean? Talk, talk a little bit more about this idea of kind of just luck and timing. I, I think you're getting to a really interesting point, which is, you know, on, on one side, if you, if you kind of think about this like a math equation, on one side, you've got your variables like input, you know, hard work. Obviously, if you extend it out to startups, you know, product, market, team, so on and so forth. But on this other side, you've just got this kind of roulette of luck and, and chance. I, mm-hmm. I, I want you to talk about that a little bit more because I, I do think there's I think there's two pieces to this. One is the idea that, you know, luck and timing have a massive, massive impact, obviously, on, on scale of success. But I often think in tech, there's kind of the over-glamorization of the polar opposite side of that argument, which is nobody really knows what they're doing. Everything is kind of luck and timing. And I think that's yeah. dangerous also, because I do think there's a clear distinction in terms of knowing what you're doing, which there are tried and true mm-hmm. methodologies, sure. versus mm-hmm. in a scale of ultimate success or impact. Right. Yeah. And often how you will notice that people that are very, let's say, successful and experienced, uh, a guy that I have a ton of respect for, uh, who is not very well known in these circles, is is Rich Barton, who started like, not only did he start Expedia inside of Microsoft, but then later on started Zillow. And he's actually, again, <laughs> The, the the CEO of Zillow, I he think. Might be one and of then the he started Glassdoor. He might be one of the only you know? example. He might be the complete counterexample, actually, to what we were just talking about, which is what who yeah. I was thinking of, which is one guy that actually has not only started three insanely successful companies, but in very, very different industries with different dynamics. That's right. Yeah, in very, well, in it's, let's say, uh, each one is, a, is kind of a, a, a twisted mirror of each other, definitely. Sure. But in lots of cases, yeah, they're different. They have, they're, you know, you, and actually I can see, you know, from the lessons I've learned of Breather, there's a set of things that I could do again. I know I can do again. Uh, but often the most successful of these companies, these insanely giant ones, are just like, man, I really feel like I could send my status out on the internet at any given time. Or like, you know, some other just, stroke of luck and they just keep following the growth and they just keep following it and they're just like well, it's not growing anymore I, I gotta follow it again and bam 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 and it just keeps compounding you don't see the thousands of failures that the sort of bodies that sort of you know are, 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 are sort of the uh, i guess that are lying along the way of this one successful outcome of course the ones that almost got there the ones that got close like all these other things but when you see the inexperience of the people that do it once and they sort of continue because they're just like, wow, this is my ticket, it doesn't take away from it. It doesn't take away from the luck. They did see that unique moment. There's a guy who started, I don't know, Tripod or one of these early 90s companies, you know, and uh, ended up selling it to GeoCities, I guess, for $100 million. God, Bo, not Bo Fishback, Bo something, a founder. He... Uh, the story is uh, he hires a bunch of programmers. He goes, we're going to go after this idea. And he comes up with an insanely stupid idea. <laughs> and then the programmers kind of, you know, they discuss among them. 
you know? And they're like, hey, Bo, like this idea is incredibly stupid. Um, uh, instead, we're just gonna allow anyone to host a website. Uh, what do you think? And the, the founder of this company, of, of I guess this tripod goes, yeah, sure. And then this company goes out and it becomes insanely successful and it gets sold for piles of money. And so people come to him all the time. This is the title of the book, which I'll get to. Uh, and they go, do you think that you were lucky or smart? And he goes, well, I was smart enough to realize I was getting lucky. And so that sort of in-between space, that, that uh, I guess, tension between this is happening one time and the I am doing my best to learn as I go, is actually like, it's very well understood by people that have a kind of dragon that they're trying to hold on to, like a fast growing company. And they're just like, I just gotta hold on and learn as best as I can, you know? And uh, you, as, as time goes on, you try to sort of minimize the luck and to maximize the amount that is skill. Uh, it, you know, I mean, it's just, it's an amazing thing to see from the inside for the few experiences where I've had, where I've been there. And you're just like, this is still going. Like, I kind of can't believe it. And people think that I am, you know, a good example of that that I saw recently is like, they'll see your ads on the subway. The actual like significance of ads being on the subway is just that you have a bunch of money and you're not sure what to do with it. <laughs> Right, in a lot of cases, <laughs> if you're a startup, <laughs> you're like, well, I guess uh, Subway, especially in New York. Uh, and, uh, but it's seen as a signal of success, which I guess, you know, maybe it is. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating to think of, uh, you know, I, I guess it speaks to outsiders. That's the big lesson, you know. Sometimes I, I resent the fact that I am an outsider and I'm still, you know, I feel like at this point in my life, I'm never going to really be accepted by people or something. Uh, but at the same time, that ability to be an outsider and see things from the outside allows you to invent things because the people on the inside are like, well, whatever, this is just the way that things are done and this is how we do things. And, uh, and so from my perspective, the luck that I have been able to sort of attach myself to is I will see something like I just said at the very beginning of this show, being able to see podcasting as an emerging phenomenon, but then seeing it in 2004, like way, 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 way before it was going to be mainstream, which it is now becoming 15 years later. So that's like, like, is that better than seeing it too late? I'm honestly not even sure, you know, the timing really is, and that moment with the right team, uh, you know, that kismet, that lightning in a bottle or, you know, holding onto the dragon is very rare. And when you have it, you just know. There's a flip side to this, uh, this, kind of, this entire sentiment that you're describing, which, which you also tweeted about. And I want to talk about it because it's the, actually the other side of the coin. And I think it's an interesting side of the, side of the discussion or the framing, which is you, you recently tweeted, you know, it's amazing to see people fail their way to the top. I watch people do it all the time. And honestly, it's shocking. Talk about <laughs> that a little bit more because that I'm, I'm interested in, mm -hmm. you know, we've just taken now one side of the coin, which is to say that, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. repeating success is tough, right? A lot of people will right. fall in their luck, mm -hmm. et cetera. But there's this other chasm, right, which I think this tweet actually gets to very well, which is this idea mm -hmm. of it's not even really that you were super successful and then you're trying to repeat mm -hmm. and luck was the factor and you were kind of taken out. This is really a, yeah. a, 
uh, an underlying core of the ecosystem or the environment, which I think is kind of a bug, right? Which is you yeah. can mm-hmm. fail your way to the top. And I, I, I've personally yeah. seen it a ton as well. So I'm curious, you of know, course. Talk, about, talk about that phenomenon just a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it's ironic because probably some people are on this podcast uh, or listening to this show or uh, have seen me do, I guess, what I've done and feel the same way about me. So that's, you know, that's another sort of angle to it to be like, God, that fucking loser is still going for some reason. Uh, but it is, I, you know, I, I got to tell you that the only people that I really resent being successful, truly resent, are the people that either really um, stole someone else's thing and executed on it, which again, like not even because the idea is actually meaningless. It's really the execution and whether you went for it, that really matters. And then the other version of that, that I think is truly the worst is just complete assholes. And I would still, there's something wrong with me. I think I'm not, it might be because I'm Canadian. I'm not just completely cynical about the entire earth (laughs) and thinking, oh, wow. Like people eventually get what they deserve. You know, a lot of this um, current uh, universe, the current, you know, the, the universe that we find ourselves uh, stuck in at the moment is a bit of a challenge to sometimes look at because you're like, wow, being an asshole is actually effective. That is so interesting. And, uh, and I don't like that that's the case. Uh, but, you know, other than that, honestly, like anyone who has done anything for any reason, who's gotten anywhere, even if they have no idea what they're doing, you know, like respect, you know, you just, you just went for it, whatever it is, you know, so maybe it's the assholes and the bureaucrats, everyone else, I don't kind of like, don't care that much. If you're an asshole and you've gotten where you need to go by stepping on people, like, fuck you. If you are a bureaucrat and you have uh, filled out papers to get where you are or whatever, I don't really respect that either, but anyone else you got there, you know, you got there. I'll shake your hand. I got no problem. Tons of respect to you. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. I mean, I think there's you can take kind of the polar sides. Uh, I I kind of have the same the same sentiment. I do think there is an underlying piece though that still is a little bit problematic, which speaks in my perspective, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. It speaks to a deeper issue around access and privilege, right? Which is you know if if you're in a hub like a Silicon Valley or New York or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are, there are, you know, lots of folks whose reputations have been built on seemingly so little. I think Ashley Mayer of, uh, who's formerly at Box Social Capital, now at Glossier, wrote a pretty interesting article about this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I, I think it speaks to, it speaks to access and privilege, which, which is a deeper, deeper issue um, uh, of, of sorts in the tech community. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, and there's no doubt, like, you know, Coming from Canada, that's not really the privilege you're talking about. I get that. But yep. coming from Canada, you definitely see it. Uh, it. And that's just a reflection. Well, I mean, part of it is straight bias and let's say xenophobia in some form, I suppose, but yep. uh, xenophobia of various forms. Uh, the other type is just, well, you, these are the people that I know. And that is sort of a more benign version of yep. it and how it's hard to understand too much of the world because the world is so big and complex. These are like the systemic kind of injustices that we need to try and resolve in our generation. The real issue is like, there's so many of them to resolve. And I, man, you know, it's, this is why I'm such a, I try to be a big believer, sometimes 
maybe to my detriment and just people that have the, you know, the odds against them because I myself have felt like the odds are against me a lot of the time. I, I'm going to anonymize a story that I've never told before and it happened to me recently, but uh, I have an agent that was uh, repping me on a, uh, on, a, on a gig, like a speaking engagement, which is like kind of a side thing that I do, and, but I've been doing them since I wrote books. And recently a gig came to me that someone was very excited about and then the CEO ultimately declined it because I had a lot of tattoos. Huh. And, and so this is not racism, of course, right? Uh, but it does speak to a strange bias, which is like, I raised $150 million. Uh, you know, I am kind of, I guess, objectively, I, I suppose, successful. It depends on your metrics. You are. I'll, you know? I'll, I'll help you finish the <laughs> sentence, right? You're objectively yeah, a yeah. very successful CEO, right? <laughs> sure. Thank you. That's nice of you yeah. to say. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. So, but within the boundaries of that, it's amazing how you could still be an outsider yeah. and you could still be like, not good enough. And, and, and so that is not an injustice really because that was my choice, right? But uh, it is a strange example of how the world just, just doesn't want to change and how everyone, including me and you, and probably everyone listening to this is going, man, I just like, why won't they let me in? Like, why won't they give me a shot? I'm just trying to do this you know, from someone getting promoted to someone trying to get a gig to someone sending like a really cool advertising campaign to a client and, you know, knowing it's going to get rejected to not getting finance to, you know, for all kinds of fundamentally stupid reasons, you know, and that's, it really comes down to perseverance, eh? which is tough. Like you go home and you go to your significant other who, you know, supports you and we need to do more for those people in our lives for sure and and be like man like that just got straight rejected you know <laughs> i think one of the things that uh that i really uh was a lesson i i was really unpopular in high school and i had basically three friends that played dungeons and dragons with me and they're still <laughs> friends to a degree with me today and i actually still play dungeons and dragons with one of them today <laughs> and others and other new people and uh and and uh and i love you gene i love you, you know? <laughs> and and so people people like that you know uh, people like uh, myself early on you're just so confronted by fucking rejection that you're like, well, I guess I got to overcome this. It's heartbreaking. So, and, and I, I, I've developed such a, um, uh, such a bitterness towards that, that my reaction, which is not everyone's reaction to this kind of outsider status and not getting accepted. My personal reaction is like, fuck you. I'll show you. And, and maybe that's the only way that I've gotten where I've gotten is just because I'm upset at other people not letting me in. Uh, you know, but that perseverance, even if it comes from a bad place, you know, I think, I think negative emotions are very motivating, <laughs> you know, to a point. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's a million things like that, that you just have to, that you have to get past, you know, that's to, to, to anyone, you know, is listening to this. It's like, you know what? They're never going to let you in. Like never. And, and you have to force your way through every tiny thing 
that you think should be different about this world. You have to do it with each person, you know? There's this story I like to tell about uh, Jeff Bezos and watching him sort of talk about the Kindle Fire. And you could tell, because he started this company in 1993, you know, and today he's like the world's richest man. But there's this amazing video where he's going through a keynote and he's like, you know, when they didn't believe that we could do this, and then we did it. (laughs) (laughs) And he just goes and he has so much like bitterness and so much anger in his voice that you could just tell he's just fucking sick of people telling him and like you know i don't know outside people people like journalists and uh you know people that are watching telling him that he can't do it how do you harness negative emotions how do you harness your negative emotions and your anger to be productive right i mean i could see that and I, i think many folks have experienced that or harness that in a not so productive way how how have you been able to consistently harness it for motivation versus you know actual self-disruptive either to yourself or you know to those around you type activity you know i don't know (laughs) i don't know that it's always productive (laughs) the truth you know but it's uh uh most days i you know i still wake up you know a lot of this i don't know a long time ago i really I had a different view on the world, which was that you could just get up, do the thing you got to do regardless of how you feel. But actually that, that fun, I learned this later, the fundamental sense of safety that you have to have in order to go out and throw yourself at something, you need to feel fundamentally safe. It is, it is the most valuable thing that you can do. So whichever way you obtain that without like, I don't know, you know, injecting yourself with drugs or like whatever, you know, that gets you there so that you can get up the next day and, you know, turn it out in a, in a positive way on, on the world or whatever. It's a super challenging thing to do. Uh, so my view has changed. It's gone from, I just go out there and do it because I'm strong enough. Like, actually, no, I'm like quite weak in a lot of ways. Uh, I just found a way to get myself to feel safe, despite a kind of, you know, uh, a long-standing sense of vulnerability or whatever, which is probably goes really, really far back. And just said, well, you know, I feel safe enough to take the next step and take the next step and make my world bigger and bigger and bigger. And by that, I mean, make my sense of safety feel bigger and bigger and bigger. There is this... Um, you know, people that have agoraphobia, uh, I have people that are close to me that have personal experiences like this. It's like it, 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 it starts maybe not by completely not wanting to leave your house. It starts by feeling vaguely unsafe, let's say, driving or on the street or something. Of course, I'm not speaking to everyone's experience. I, I'm speaking to some people's experience. Uh, and it's like progressively, as time goes on, either you listen and you're like, well, maybe I won't drive. And then, okay, I'm not driving. And actually, I feel better at home. And then progressively. So it's just like either your world is shrinking. But again, I want to say I don't blame people that are in this world, in, in this place. Like people very close to me that have had this experience, you know. And, uh, and so you're either kind of, you're all, it's very hard not to listen to those feelings because they're so visceral. And the reality is, is like, you know, you're out there. And you just got to try your best like every day 
and wake up and just try to enlarge your sense of safety to a point where you can go out and do the things that you feel you need to do on this earth and that you were put on this earth to do. And you keep working first to get that sense of safety and then to enlarge that sense of safety. And if you do that, then maybe that's the only thing that matters. And that's how people ultimately end up taking risk, right? And that risk is, as we've seen, the risk of compounding success that happens progressively, but it's got to start and it's got to start any given day. And today is the only real day you have control over. As, a, as, we, as we round out the conversation, Julian, I'm, I'm curious what you believe um, to be something that we don't talk about enough today and, and whether it's in tech or, or not. Um, and you'd like to specifically use your platform for change. So I'm, I'm imagining, you know, you're 40 years old, successful CEO, successful writer. You look back and you say, people listen to me now, right? And I, I, ha- I do have a platform. What, what do you mm-hmm. kind of wake up in the morning and say, I want to use this platform for? Ma'am. Hmm. So, you know, I, I guess the fundamental thing for me is I just, I just wish the world changed faster. It's like it, in, in, throughout m- much of the uh, stuff that we've seen, you know, in our lifetime or in the 21st century or whatever, the world is changing in various different forms and it goes through ebbs and flows. But it's like, it's like I just wish that we could drag the world along in the direction that's probably supposed to go faster than it is. Yep. You know, and uh, and so I think technology is helping that by just speeding up those cycles, you know, Uh, but I think ultimately it's just like everyone needs to do some form of contribution to that. That's why this is why I respect entrepreneurs is why I do a point. I kind of make fun of bureaucrats. It's it's because like you're either kind of rent seeking or you're going out and creating more efficiencies. Those, those efficiencies are typically what people buy, yep. a better way to do X. And bureaucrats are kind of a, another, literally the opposite version of that in a lot of ways. People that put forms that you have to fill between X and Y. Keep the status quo, right? Yeah, we'll try to keep the status quo because of some, you know, sometimes important and sometimes turns out not so important yeah. reason or antiquated reason. So. This is why, regardless of entrepreneurs, I think anyone who throws themselves at something deserves a tremendous amount of respect. And, uh, and so I would, I guess, push people to start something. You know, I have a lot of projects that I've just sort of tried and started, and I've recently sort of come to grips with this. But trust me, it would be pretty easy for me to be- become a bureaucrat as well. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I've sort of, I don't know, personally come to grips with the fact that I think creation is a sort of a universal sort of aspect of my life, which is never really going to go away. And it's been around for a long time. And, uh, and I think it's in more people's lives than they currently are thinking. And so to go out and create something that helps other people is probably the most valuable thing that you can do. Julian, this has been, this has been a really interesting conversation. I've, I've personally just really appreciated your vulnerability, your honesty, and and how candid you were in your thoughts. So, you know, thank you so much for making the time. This was this was really awesome. Thank you very much. My pleasure.